Hi again, everybody, and welcome to Inside Curling with me, Jungle Jim Jerome, and our two World Curling Hall of Famers, Kevin Martin and, of course, Warren Hansen. And what a great season it was. Uh, so much stuff that we talked about this year. This is our wrap-up show. Uh, Warren, you've called it Blockbuster. That's a lot of pressure, Warren, you're putting on Kevin and I <laughs> to make it Blockbuster. <laughs> uh, you can handle it, Jim. Otherwise, I just make stuff up if it's not interesting enough, Warren. I just make it all up. So make sure you don't miss a minute of it. Uh, we really appreciate everyone listening, and we fully want to recognize all of our sponsors that have made this possible. Sports Interaction, who brings you what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of Mailbag Coyote Tractor. Brings you hot rock topics and story time, which we love, is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing. And we often have a guest, and we've got three of them today. Thank you, Goldline Curling, sponsoring our In the House segment. What's happening around the curling world? We're going to uh, look at some interesting things that are unfolding for next curling season, and we're going to talk about a couple of them. The curling season is pretty well done, but Warren has a short announcement for us. Hot Rock Topics. Last week, our guest, uh, Jock Tire, brought up an interesting comment about the rules that should be used in club curling versus the rules on the Grand Slam and various Canadian and World Championships and high-performance stuff. We talk about that a lot, but it's very lively. Mailbag. Uh, not just one, but we've got two or three of them that we're going to get to. In the house. This is kind of cool. Warren set all this up. Today, we're going to do something really special. During the past year, there were three people who wrote a number of interesting stories about curling. Christina Rutherford of Sportsnet, Ted Wyman of Post Media, and Greg Strong of Canadian Press. And we are going to interview all three of them and uh, see what their take is on the season that was and maybe what lies ahead. Uh, story time. Uh, Kevin, you're going to talk about Tomas Alruz, whose untimely death happened uh, several days ago. He was only 50 years old, but he was such a huge part of curling, Kevin, in your day. He was quite a force and, and a really fun guy. Uh, thank you to everyone for your emails. We love to get them, and they bring forth a lot of thought-provoking stuff. Insidecurling at gmail.com. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. It's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Benny. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was... Cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, let's get right to it. What's happening around the curling world? Brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds in all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. We want you to be 19 and we want you to play responsibly. So the curling season came to an end. Not a lot left to talk about. For this season, but there are some unanswered questions about some of the issues regarding events going into next year. On the junior scene, Japan, here they come again, won the world's women's for the first time at the same world juniors. The Canadian women's finished eighth. And so Canada's been relegated to the world B pool in 2023. I think this is the first time, Warren, you've uh, let me know that Canada has been relegated in any world championship. Tell us what all this means, Warren. Well, the way this works, and this is only at the junior level, not at the men's or women's 
level, or mixed doubles has a different setup uh, again. This means that Canada now has to play in the World Junior B Championship on the women's side that is held in early December, I believe. And any curling nation in the world that isn't part of the top 10 can enter this. And what it means is the top three teams of the Junior B Championship will then qualify to be part of the 10-team World Championship that will be held at the end of February. So it doesn't mean that Canada has been eliminated. It means that they've now got to go through a step to qualify for the world event because of uh, not finishing in the top seven. Mm-hmm. So that's something that uh, Canada is going to be looking at in uh, the next season that's a little different from whatever anything that's ever happened before to this country. Uh, there's some questions weren't outstanding with some of the event schedule for next season. Well, there's a, there are a number of things. Let's first of all talk about a new event that we've talked about before, the Pan-Continental Championship. And the old Pacific Asia Cup used to be held for that region of the world to determine two teams for the world championships, men's and women's. As you may recall, we talked about this earlier in the year, and uh, going into next season, that's going to be changed to now the Pan-Continental Championship, which North America and South America will now be part of. So in that inaugural event that's going to be held at the end of October... On the men's side, as I see it right now, and I won't swear that this is 100% correct, but I believe it should be close, Canada, USA, Korea, Japan, Chinese Taipei, New Zealand, and Australia will be part of it on the men's side. On the women's side, will be Canada, USA, Korea, Japan, China, Hong Kong, Kazakhstan, and Australia. And the way this whole thing is going to work, I'm not sure what kind of a playoff they're going to use, but the top five teams coming out of it will have a berth in the World Championship. So I wouldn't see it being a big issue because probably I would think quite likely the five teams would be Canada, USA, Korea, Japan, and China at this stage of the game anyway. I suppose one of these other countries could come through and surprise, but probably not likely. So that's a new event that's going to be held in uh, this coming year, and it's going to be held in Canada from everything I have been told and know about. And it's going to be at the end of October. I've heard some rumors this may be said Calgary Olympic Park, but again, I don't know. And as who is going to represent Canada? We'll have to assume that the Briar and Scotty's winners from last year will be Canada's reps. But again, that hasn't been announced. So that's one thing that's a little bit up in the air. The other one, to some degree, is the season of champions. It was designed to cover the first quarter of the year which is why it was called the Season of Champions. We, at that point in time, were facing a challenge that all these championships, as they had developed, ended up being put into March because that was the supposed end of the curling season. So it was becoming very difficult to get television coverage on them all, proper attention, and, of course, sponsorship because everything was jammed on top of uh, each other in the month of March. So a decision was made in discussion with the television networks and sponsors to make all this thing fly into the future. We need to create a season. And so that's where the season of champions came into being and what it was really all initially intended to do. And from the start, it was to involve the Canadian seniors, the Canadian mix, the Canadian juniors, the Scotties, the Briar, and then the one world championship that was a combined event. And it covered the first quarter. And why that was important, because the sponsorships that were sold on the season of champions gave the sponsors, advertising, signage, entire the entire first quarter of the year. So it became a, a media buy for the first quarter of, of the season. And uh, if you were the title sponsor of the Briar, you ended up having signage and uh, commercial time and all the other events. So it was, it was a blanket coverage for those three months. And so it got out of the gate and it continued to go pretty good for four or five years. But the seniors in the mix, which were the lead in the events in January, 
we're just having the semifinals and the finals covered, and the audience numbers on them were not good. So there was discussion at that point in time of what was going to happen. We wanted to get more television time, more airtime, but those two events weren't going to offer it. So two new events were developed. One was the Canada Cup and the other one was the Continental Cup. There's some details as to why those were the two events chosen, but that became the replacements for the mixed and the seniors. The way this whole thing worked, it was to be for the three-month period, a week on, a week off. So again, there was an opportunity for everything to move from one site to the other. So that all went along pretty good up until uh, probably 2003, when Ford decided that they wanted to probably vacate unless uh, something was arranged so that they could have a presence in Canada every year with their event, which was the Worlds. So the world men's and women's were split. And so the Caesar champions there went from five events to six. As we look forward here to this coming year, I'm not sure exactly what the game plan is because this is now the 1st of June. And I look on the Curling Canada website, the only two events I see listed as part of the season champions is the Scotties and the Briar. We don't know what's happening with the Continental Cup or the Canada Cup. Another new event has been talked about coming into existence, but we don't know about that either. There's also some talk about uh, mixed doubles becoming part of the season champions, but again, we don't know. So what's going to be happening going forward with uh, the season champions going into this coming season? So... A few things that have some question marks. Kevin, uh, what do you think of all this? Well, you know, overall, there's question marks, but I'm sure those questions will become uh, clearer, hopefully pretty soon, because you're talking about October being one of the events, so it's got to be pretty soon in order to run the event. Um, I even hear there could be that new event even as early as September. Well, that's not very far away, so they definitely need to get that going. Now, things evolving, though, I've always been a fan of that. If uh, you're going to change some things, a little more exciting, bring mixed doubles into the fold. I think that's that's a wonderful idea. Mixed doubles is growing like crazy worldwide. So within the next couple, three weeks, I would think that this has to become quite clear going into the fall um, because teams have to prepare their schedules. And, and a lot of them, by by the early August, most teams have their flight schedule, hotel schedule, uh, and their, their, their life organized and ready to go for the fall. Yeah, Warren, uh, Kevin... Wh- uh, I want to get your comment on what, you know, Warren had brought up this, uh, you know, the junior team and that there's a relegation now, like like soccer over in, in uh, Europe, and that we've been relegated to the uh, B, I guess, group. Um, are you a fan of this relegation? You know, there's often talk, right, in a lively debate about, you know, the, the residency rule and having provinces in our national championships, but 60% of them don't stand a shot. Uh, what are your thoughts, Kev, on this whole relegation idea, and should we see more of it going forward? Well, I, I definitely, on a world stage, I certainly think it's a good idea to have an A pool, B pool, and maybe even a C pool. Just with so many countries interested in getting into the World Curling Federation and being part of the World Championships and and, and international curling as a whole, so um, I think it's great. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit shocking that the Canada finds themselves in the B pool um, in junior women's, but you know, I, I'm sure that I'm not sure who we're going to send to try to uh, get into the A pool for the worlds. Um, but I, I, I think it's a bit of a wake-up call for us. It's kind of shocking that Canada is in the B pool. But three teams come out of the event to get into the Worlds, and I'm sure we'll do that. You know, the world of curling is changing. And uh, with that, I guess it's, it's mostly positive when things are growing worldwide. We just have to keep up, that's all. 
Okay, you're not gonna, you're not going to relegate me, are you, over the summer? <laughs> it's going to be a board meeting. There was a couple of times during the briar, Kevin, that Warren came in and said, "No, you're not relegated at all. You're fired." <laughs> not really. We had a we had a we had a great great relationship, me and Warren. Uh, okay, Warren, there's another event uh, group in Winnipeg uh, has a curling event that will be held in Manitoba next season in memory of Bob Picken. Uh, he was a resident of Winnipeg and a prominent figure in the curling world over the last 40 years. Wow. Or for over 40 years. And he passed away in 2019. For his contribution to curling, Bob is a member of the Manitoba Curling Hall of Fame, the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, Canadian Curling Hall of Fame, and the World Curling Hall of Fame. Tell us a bit about Bob Warren. Bob was known by most people in Manitoba as sort of the voice of sports in the province. He Brought a huge contribution. Uh, over two decades, he was with CBC, and he was the voice of many things that CBC did, but the two main things was the Grey Cup for 15 years, and for years, he was the voice of curling on CBC Radio. He did extensive coverage of curling in the local area in Manitoba, nationally and internationally, but he was also involved with the sport of curling himself. He, he actually served a term as the president of the Manitoba Curling Association, and he actually played in the final of the Manitoba Men's Championship in 1967. Bob also worked uh, tirelessly for curling at the world level representing Canada. He served as the Canadian International Chairman, I think, for a period of about five years in the late 70s and was instrumental in getting a lot of things changed and going in the right direction. If anybody ever heard Bob, he had this very deep, booming voice. I nicknamed him Foghorn Pickin' because of the loud, very distinctive voice that he had. Bob was a good friend. A group in Winnipeg, however, is trying to keep Bob's memory going, and they, in 2019, started a, an event called the Bob Pickin' Masters. COVID sidetracked the whole thing, and so in 2020, it didn't really return. But in the inaugural year, they were able to get their whole intent moving, and that was to develop funds for junior development. And they were able to make a contribution to 12 Manitoba clubs. They're hoping in the next year, in 2023, that they'll be able to increase this to 20. And they want to try and grow this whole idea, maybe to go beyond Winnipeg, is the Bob Pickin Masters Bondspiel idea, which I think is great. So we'll wish those guys in Winnipeg, led by Brian Kushner, good luck. And if anyone has any interest in this, can send us an email at Inside Curling. Well, I bet a lot of clubs will be interested when they're talking about using that money, Warren, to, to distribute it amongst other clubs. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good idea with what they're doing. I think, Kevin, you certainly uh, encountered Bob many times. He was he was a bit of a character amongst other things. Uh, yeah, and that booming voice is, if you think of, of, uh, of Bob, you think of that voice. It was unique to only him. Thanks a lot to Sports Interaction uh, for bringing you... What's happening around the curling world? Uh, we appreciate that. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, thank you to Coyote Tractor. This is coming up right now. Proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, let's say it together, boys. We dig, dig dirt. dirt. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are brutal. You'd be no good in a choir. I'd have to take the lead. When we talked to Jock Tyre last week, he suggests that probably curling club play should be a lot different than the players at the Grand Slam or other major events. The one rule that was discussed was the five rock rule and that it really isn't something that is needed to be played at the league level. Because it's a more complicated way of playing, it slows everything down and Jock suggested that most of his leagues seldom get seven ends completed, never mind eight. Warren, I might have an idea what you think, but we need to hear from you on this. Do we need a distinct, different set of rules for different levels of play? I think without question, this has been an issue forever. There is no way that somebody in the Choosing Lake 
men's league needs a five rock rule or a three rock rule or just not at that level. And with potential coming forward of a no tick rule, uh, the same thing exists. And, and what it's going to do, as Jock has suggested, it's going to slow down play. And I mean, play has changed a lot over time, certainly in, in my era. I can remember club games that went 10 ends, and 90% of the time we completed them, and it was a two-hour time limit. And it was a different type of style of play. But if you bring in a five-rock rule into recreational play, uh, it's going to take nothing but time because, as somebody suggested to me, they're playing the five-rock rule anyway without knowing it. And so I agree with Jock. They should make the rules for recreational play very simple. Maybe if you've got a competitive men's league or a super league, you may want to maybe incorporate the same rules as the big boys and girls. Mm-hmm. But I think with normal club play, um, keep it simple, stupid. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, no, uh, you're right. And no different than any other sport, really, when it comes to recreational play. You don't need to go to that depth of rule. Just simply, you know, when it comes to golf, even play it as fast as you can when you're just out going to play a three hour round. To your point, yes, it, uh, the five rock rule is not necessary. The tick zone, that would really slow up play, I think, because a lot of times uh, at the club level, you rack on the guards. You're a little inside, rack on the guard. But of course, now there's all the discussion of where do you put the rock back, and and that could be that could take a long time. You're right. Listen, Kevin and Warren, I've seen some high performance teams that can't use the no ticks rule. <laughs> Never mind clubs, man. I agree. Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor. We dig dirt. We got it uh, for bringing you hot rock topics. Uh, let's go to the mailbag. We got a few of them uh, in our in our blockbuster show as we carry on. It's brought to you by Nestle Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost, convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love, and I do, and I use it, and it works. An observation, curling is a game of precision. Precision, precision, precision. Precision. Let me get this out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, here we go. Can I leave that out? It's such a tough... A podcast is a very precise way to say words. <laughs> there we go. It's such a tough word. Pre- precision, okay? Observing curling is a game of precision that is affected by variables and athleticism. Fewer variables and higher athleticism make it easier. Variables related to ice... Rocks and sweeping have greatly diminished, especially for the highest caliber teams. The level of athleticism is also far greater, of course. The combination has led to a massive increase in precision. Many of the rule changes since the early 90s have been enacted to combat this trend. Less precision is, uh, leads to fewer shots made, uh, which increases the drama and excitement of curling. I still don't know if I'm pronouncing the word right. <laughs> Uh, could precision be more easily and broadly affected by moving the release point back from the hawk line? Very interesting. If a new release line were created, would it make all shots harder, thereby leading to the decrease in precision that is desired? What is the right amount to move it back? Four feet, ten feet. Club curlers could still use the hog line, and the release line would be like the black tees in golf. Those are the back ones, by the way, folks. Thanks a lot to Nathan from Calgary. Uh, who wants to go first? Kev, how about you? Sure. I think it's an interesting idea. We actually talked about this maybe, I don't know, Warren, a year and a half ago. We we talked about this and, and, and moving the release line back a little bit for top play. It has some some merit. There's no question when you get a guy like, say, EJ Harnon is a great example, coming out at a million mile an hour and, and just can release the rock exactly straight, be it four feet, six feet, whatever, and make people like that 
release sooner, uh, it would be very difficult, uh, more difficult to be able to get settled and online and release before that line. So you definitely would uh, add a little bit of difficulty, especially to the hit game. The draw game, I think that players would still uh, be able to draw at at the level they do today, but the hitting would be more difficult, I think. That could definitely be looked at and, and maybe should be looked at. What do you say, Warren? Oh, yes. This is a, an interesting topic. I mean, this goes back to the point of how the game of curling was designed. It was designed to throw a stone from a stationary position, now a hack, to a target about 145 feet away. And you weren't supposed to be sliding out another 30 feet before you let it go. And that has impacted the ability of people to be successful in shots uh, immensely. And I think that's why we've had to come up with a three-rock rule, a four-rock rule, a five-rock rule. And now it's sort of like, okay, what's next? Neil Houston and I have talked about this many times, and, and we both share an idea that, you know, in 1974, the hog line rule was changed. And, and I went through an interesting experience with that change of the hog line rule. In fact, in 1974, you released the stone, but after you released it, you had to come to a complete stop before any part of your body touched the hog line. If any part of your body touched the hog line before you were stopped, it was a foul. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> oh, man, you had to collapse your entire body. And interesting, we, we played 74 Briar with that rule, which we won. And 10 days later, we're playing the World Men's Championship in Bern, Switzerland. And it was with the new rule that exists today. So there was an overnight instant from the old to the new that we were first hands to experience. And so maybe that was where the first mistake was made. Maybe we need to go back to the 74 hog line rule of you stop your complete body before you can touch the line. What, do you got to wear golf spikes to do it? I don't know. Have a rubber belly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, I used to turn the side, I, my sliding foot foot, I'd turn it right over and, and, and have my the leather on the shoe uh, actually drag because I came out of the hack really fast. Not as fast as these guys today, but faster than most people did during my time. And uh, for me to stop was uh, one hell of an effort. And so the sliders now are way quicker. Uh, the deliveries are way better. And so these guys uh, coming out now are moving. And, you know, you watch some of them. They can, without with ease, slide right to the house at the other end. They don't even have to put much effort into it. And back in the old days when sliders were not very good, uh, people could do it with a lot of effort. But today it's not hard. So I think Nathan brings up an interesting point of maybe this is something that needs to be looked at. Kev, all you do is the two sweepers who are, you know, waiting for the rock to be delivered is you just take your broom and ram him in, into his head. <laughs> <laughs> just give him the full baseball thing across the chest. Yeah, gives, yeah, gives him a clothesline or a crossbody. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that's funny. It's hard to believe that was a rule. Uh, Cheryl Caswell from the Iron Pride Curling Club, Iron Pride, just outside of Ottawa, great little town, by the way, writes us, Hi, Kevin Warren and Jim. I love your podcast and look forward to it every week. I'm the vice president of the Iron Prior Curling Club in Ontario, and we are beginning to focus on growing our little club through specific investments in our members and new programs. All right, let's hear about this. This past season, we held a club coaching clinic and invested in 11 of our members to become qualified coaches. We did this with the intention of running a new season-long Learn to Curl program and offering various skill development opportunities for our current members. We're also going to focus on junior programs next year for kids under 18. We have qualified coaches for this program and have a long-term goal of a Bantam League or facilitating a high school league with some regional schools. 
Do you have any suggestions to get kids and young adults interested in curling? I'd love a discussion on specific things that we can do in our community to raise the interest in curling, especially for the younger generations. Thanks for your podcast, boys. The educational and entertainment value is second to none. Wow, are they ever doing a ton, though, to grow the sport? Fantastic. I love hearing this, where you have uh, instruction based when people come in and young people, or, or it doesn't matter what age, coming into the club, get them comfortable, get understanding the game, how to throw it, how to sweep, so that there's not as much injury, it doesn't hurt as much, and then you enter into some sort of a learn-to-curl league of some kind that's not just based on the education and, and the throwing, but also on the fun. So you can get out there, learn a little bit, play a few ends. That's it. A uh, well, great idea. And I think uh, keeping fun involved, you know, how, how are you going to grow this? We'll make sure when you get the kids in the door, they learn something, but they're also having a lot of fun and, and combining both of those things. Don't make the poor kid have to learn technical stuff for an hour and a half straight. They're, you know, the eyes are going to gloss over and they're never coming back. So make it... Uh, uh, some instruction every day, but also some fun every day. And that's a great idea. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, Cheryl, on uh, what you're doing in Arm Prior. I think that's great stuff. Let me offer a suggestion to you and to many clubs with regard to how you retain these people and how do you get them involved? Because I see happening a lot. Uh, instruction programs taking place for 50 people, and maybe at the end of the 10 of them might continue in some form with curling. And I think to some degree, you have to make sure you offer them something after they've learned how to play the sport uh, as to how would they like to play it. And I think you have to have options available. Do you want to just be a casual player and maybe you want to come in once every couple of weeks and throw some stones or play uh, a few ends with some other people? Would you like to belong to a league? Would you like to be in a four-person team, maybe two-person team, or maybe triples team? And I think you have to find out what these people are looking for uh, in the sport and then try to accommodate them as best you can. Because I think what's happening now, the world has changed with regard to particular Gen Zs and young millennials as to what they like to do and what they want to do. And if you don't provide this in a manner which they find uh, appropriate for them and interesting, uh, they aren't going to continue. So I think that would be my suggestion as to how to retain them. Make sure you're offering them a program or a way of playing that meets their desires. Here's our last email of the season from Mark McCabe. A question. Why do teams have different brushes for delivery compared to sweeping? I hadn't noticed before, but there are a lot of different brushes for delivering the stones compared to sweeping. For example, Gunnison has a small plate under his broom. Dunstone and Newfeld uh, use a corn broom for delivering. Some use a solid head and others like Guju are using the same brush as sweeping. Why is this, Kevin? Well, that is a great thing to bring up. So uh, when it comes to a tucker, so people that tuck, that's the ones you're going to see that use a corn broom or something like Gunner uses with the, the steel underneath so it slides easily. But when it comes to flat foot deliveries, you've got really two choices. Now with mixed doubles, this has changed it a bit. Um, I actually do some some teaching uh, down south with Corey Dropkin and, and uh, because he plays mixed doubles, he tends to like to use the broom that he uses to sweep, obviously, because he needs to get up and sweep right away. But when it comes to most curlers, from Western Canada at least, um, you'll have a sliding broom that's different than your than your sweeping broom. And the reason for that, the heads of most competitive-made brooms are made of plastic. And plastic on ice is extremely slippery. The heads have to be movable now. You can't have a, 
a wooden, like a, a, head, a head like a transformer, if you want to go back a couple of years, that's not allowed anymore. You have to have a movable head. And those aren't as sturdy for, for throwing. So a wooden headed broom that's stationary is a really good idea for especially people, uh, young people learning how to curl. But you'll see uh, most of the top players from Western Canada using that. Now, it has changed a bit, like I said, because of mixed doubles. So in four-person curling, you don't jump up and sweep necessarily. You, you could if you had a, a sweeping broom. But if you have a, a sliding broom, that's different, and you don't. But they don't need to. You have a four-person game. In mixed doubles, though, you will. In Reed Carruthers' case, he uses a crutch to slide with, and he'll have his broom standing just outside the hog line. So when he gets done throwing, he slides his his in mixed doubles, he'll slide his crutch to the side, grab the broom, and carry on. So that's another option for uh, for players that are trying to figure this out. But there's no question it's a it's a it's a really good idea. Like when I do uh, camps, um, I actually bring some of the uh, wooden backed brooms with me for people to try. I promise you, when people try them, especially at the intermediate to advanced level, they notice a huge difference in their stability, especially early during the drive phase, coming out of the hack to the T-line, say, you'll have far more stability in the f- when you're coming down into your slide if you have that stationary-headed, wooden-backed broom. Warren, anytime someone mentions corn broom, we got to go to you. That's what you, you were, you were a corn broom guy. Yeah. Kevin, you might have been too, were you, at the start? A little wee bit, Jimmy, but not, not much. You were for sure, uh, Warren. Oh, yes, that was, uh, that was my era. I went through a few pounds of corn every year without question. This is a point that's been a sore one with me for a long time, and it comes back to another one of those loose ends and curling. What can you use as a sliding device? Well, it doesn't say anything. You could, if you want to use a two by four, I guess you could do that because there's nothing to stop you from doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there has to be some rules, and I think there's probably two things that should be acceptable, and that is, as Kevin suggests, it's a broom. We've got maybe a wood head on it versus the the synthetic ones that uh, exist with the sweeping device. Or it has to be a, a, a product that has been made specifically for sliding, as I think Crutch is one of the names, Stabilizer is another one. Mm-hmm. And that uh, Curling Canada and the World Curling Federation set standards on what is acceptable as a device. And I think right now, the fact that I don't think a corn broom should be allowed anywhere near a sheet of curling ice, no matter how it has been taped, because there's still going to be particles that can come out of it. It's a good point brought up by Mark, and I think it's, again, something that needs to be addressed by the governing bodies. Very good. If you had to wrap it up, Warren, or even if I did, I, I one of the big stories, Kevin and Warren, I thought was Italy winning that mixed doubles. That's what that's what I would say. Warren, what do you say was the biggest story? Because we're going to ask our writers about that, but uh, we need to hear from you what you think is the biggest thing. I think Constantini and Masana winning a gold medal at the Olympics undefeated would come as the surprise of the year. Certainly, it was a fantastic story, but a surprise. No one saw that coming, and uh, I think it, it was fantastic, but an outstanding accomplishment. Cool. What do you say, Kev? Oh, there are so many things. Uh, I would say this year really, in my opinion, wrapped up. The biggest story is almost every curling team changing their rosters in one season. Right. I don't think going back as far as I can remember, I've ever seen anything like it. Amazing year that way. Thank you, you guys, for all your input and all your great emails and uh, all the Facebook stuff. It's fantastic. This is called In the House, and we've got three guests, uh, Christina Rutherford, Ted Wyman, and Greg Strong. It's brought to you by Goldline. Goldline curling equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. 
Goldline can also be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. Come on in, folks. Let's get this underway. So we were talking, fellas, about uh, interviews. This is our blockbuster show, uh, and we're going to talk to a number of sports writers. And, of course, the one and only Christina Rutherford, who's been with Sportsnet for 10 years. And uh, what a season it was. And uh, Christina joins us uh, this morning. Christina, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you guys? Good. You're off. You're off golfing. Well, it's the Team Canada Media Day, which is a really fun day. Um, so members of the media get paired up with a member of Team Canada. So in the past, I've gotten to play with Brooke Henderson and Jared Dutois. So it's a it's a really fun day. So we're going to Weston, just in the West End of Toronto. Look at you roll. Wow, way to go. Kevin and I just play a bunch of public courses around here, so you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Kev, they don't let us on private courses. <laughs> Christina, what a year it was in curling. Um, and we got a number of questions for you. And I, I, I guess the first one, uh, is what what do you think is the biggest curling story that happened this past year? Yeah, that's honestly a tough one because so much did happen this year, right? Like I look at Carrie Einerson and her team winning a third straight Scotties, and then Brad Gushu's team goes to the Briar, wins with a three-man team after their third. Mark Nichols tests positive for COVID. But honestly, if I really look at it, and I think the story that – really stands out to me as the biggest, just because it had the most legs, was the team botcher breakup. And it wasn't just because it happened mid-season that the team announced they were parting ways with uh, Darren Moulding, but the fact that it was sort of those mixed messages, right? With the team saying that Darren needed time away, and then Darren sort of immediately firing back and saying that wasn't the case, and joining Team NB. And then I was fortunate enough to be at that briar and witness that Saturday night matchup between Darren's new team and his old team. And it was just unbelievable. Like the drama, there was trash talk, there were stare downs, there were tears afterwards from Darren. And it was the most, I think, talked about curling story that I wrote this year. And I think just among sports fans, it was very... And noticeable and talked about because it did last for so long. And and Curling Canada, of course, scheduled that matchup for Saturday night at the Briar. So it was just electric and the fans were unbelievable. It felt like it was a final. So to me, that's a really long answer, but it was a great season in curling. But to me, that one, that one really stood out. Right. In your in your 10 years, uh, the sense I'm getting that separates this story, because a bunch of teams did break up. Because it was controversial with a team breakup, we don't see that very often. With I love the I love the trash talking part. I didn't see it, but is that what separates it from other team breakups? I think so. Yeah, and the mid season breakup right isn't all that common. They're always emotional, but this was maybe it's because of the age we're in with social media that we were able to see immediate reactions. And Darren is very, I guess, honest and and emotional when he speaks. And he was in tears after that game, after hugging his son and being, you know, a home briar for him in Alberta. 
You knew he wanted to compete there as Team Canada and defending champions, and he didn't get the chance. And it was just, yeah, there was so much there. It, it really was the most emotionally wrought. It felt like curling game of the season, even though it wasn't like an Olympic trials was on the line. But it was just, there was there was so much there. Uh, although people, Christina, would love to hear from me for an entire two hours about curling. We've got a couple other guys who are very good, very good at it. Uh, Kevin, you're there. What up, brother? <laughs> hey, Jimmy. Hi, Christina. Thank you for doing this. Of course. I would like to add a little bit uh, or ask you a little bit about uh, the, the Darren Molding and Botcher. You, you mentioned, you know, why was it so emotional? And it just seemed to me, uh, sitting on the sidelines watching that unfold, I don't know if I've ever seen a team mess up uh, a press release to that degree. I Usually you'll have a PR person or somebody to help. My goodness. Yeah. What a disaster. I'd like to hear your point on that because most times when teams come out with big news, maybe the whole team will know mm-hmm. <laughs> about it. And, and, and maybe you discuss these things prior and how you're going to handle the media side. Yeah, no, disaster is a really good way to put it because I think what it created, their their press release created this idea that Darren was stepping away maybe for mental health reasons. He mentioned he had a lot of messages coming in, people asking if he was okay, and he was entirely okay, right? <laughs> so it created, it created a little bit of a disaster in Darren's personal life because that message was just not fine-tuned at all. I don't know if it was just thrown together or nobody talked about it. There weren't any grammatical errors in it, which was nice to see, but it was not, yeah, it wasn't a well-thought-out message. I think that's what made the story so big, right? Because it required a lot of interviews after that came out with apologies. And then it, <laughs> it created, yeah, this intense upcoming matchup at the Briar that then just delivered. Like, I was sitting in the front row and watching Darren for most of that game, and the stage Stare-downs were incredible, like incredibly long lengths of time that he was staring at his old teammates, and they were so good at not giving him anything and not responding to his trash talk, but it was it was really incredible to watch. <laughs> good thing Kark was on that team because if Molding went at Botcher, he's going to whip him for sure. Okay, he's got, him, he's got him by about 50 pounds. <laughs> yeah, the one thing about the Botcher team at the time, they had a pretty big front end. <laughs> yeah, yep. yeah. Christina, how did you get into, into media? I wanted to ask you this before we get into more uh, stuff in uh, in the curling world but myself now I'm quite involved in, in it but it, of course it wasn't really the the path that I had chosen it just kind of happened but how did you get into it and, uh, and and did you intend writing to be what you were considering as a young person or was it other parts of media oh yeah for me it was always writing um and it was in large part because I grew up playing a lot of sports and my dad was actually a journalist before I was born. And then he switched professions so that he could afford to have children. He always mentioned it was such a great job and you didn't have to sit behind a desk for most of the day. You got to go out and interview people. And I was really fortunate. I got an early internship with CBC Sports and had some experience before that at a community newspaper. And it just sort of grew from there. I had bunch of contracts in a row before uh, Sportsnet started a magazine. I joined the staff there and it's just been so much fun. I mean, I've covered all of the sports basically and, and really got into curling this past year. Yeah, long answer, but that's sort of how it started. 
Uh, Christina, one of the things we like to do with all sporting events at the end of a season is rank who's best and who's not, and uh, how is it all falling into place? Go ahead, Hanson. You're there. All right, Christina. So as you sit there today, as far as curling in Canada is concerned, who do you think are going to be the best teams on first the women and the men going into 2022-23? Going into next season, honestly, it's sort of tough to say because there have been so many shakeups. But if I look at last season, I remember being at Olympic trials and watching Tracy Fleury's team really run the table there and look so dominant until the final. Of course, they lost in the final. That's one team that really intrigues me with Tracy joining Rachel Homan. To me, those are two of the best skips on the planet uniting. And you wonder how they're going to do together. But I mean, it's tough to say how new teams are going to do, obviously, but I look at Carrie Einerson's team and I think they had such an incredible run. When they got together four years ago, everybody was kind of looking at them going, four former skips, is that really going to work? They won a bunch of events in a row. Of course, they won back-to-back-to-back Scotties. Um, I think they underperformed at Olympic trials, but it'll be interesting, too, to see what they do. I look at them as one of the top teams on the women's side. And then on the men's side, I, I don't think you can dispute Brad Gushu just being the top dog there, his team, just to win Olympic trials. And obviously the Olympics themselves didn't go the way they wanted. They won the bronze medal. But then to regroup from that, win the briar with a three-man team after one guy tests positive for COVID and then go to Worlds and win silver. I mean, that's a pretty stellar season. I see them as the as the top men's team. Yeah, I don't think we can argue with that, that the Gushu team, particularly by getting E.J. Harden with them, who should uh, mm-hmm. fill the gap that Gallant's going to leave pretty good. So I would have to agree with you. Let's... Uh, Let's shift gears a bit and uh, talk about a story you wrote during the year with regard to the state of curling in Canada and uh, the challenges and problems that uh, Curling Canada is facing, I think, with their high performance end of things is the struggle between do we continue with the old way of doing things, which is more or less an interprovincial structure, or do we open things up to be more available to anybody to form whatever teams they want? And if we look at Canada's performance on the high-performance end of it, I mean, we're always been right in there. But if we look at probably the last 10-year period, it hasn't been that great. Last one, the men's worlds in 2017, the women's worlds in 2018. Last one, a gold medal at the men's and women's Olympics in 2014. Gold mixed doubles in 2018, but no medal in 2022. And the Canadian team has never won a world's mixed doubles championship, although John Morris did win the gold in 2018 in mixed doubles. What do you think maybe needs to change with how they're approaching things? And secondly, do you think anything will change? So I guess I'll pair it a few things that some of the top players uh, in the Canadian curling program have told me. And I think, you know, Warren, if, if gold medals and winning is the focus, then absolutely things do need to change because I think the depth in Canada is absolutely an incredible asset and no other country comes close to the depth that Canada has, right, at the top level. But Canada's falling behind the rest of the world because they're focusing in on one or two teams. They're putting all those resources into those one or two teams. And I think Canada needs to move in that direction in order to keep up. So 
one of the things that a lot of people told me was the funding structure needs to change. So Curling Canada in a non-Olympic year will allocate funding to, say, the top six or eight ranked teams in the country on the men's and women's side. And the division between what the top team gets and, say, the eighth team isn't all that big. So a lot of people do want to see those top two or three teams really getting either all of the funding or the bulk of the funding. And then, of course, there's the residency rules, which have been talked about for years. Should those exist? Should you require everybody living or from the same province? And I think you shouldn't. You should enable teams to find absolute all-stars living across the country. But then on the other hand, what that creates is those teams need to be funded adequately so they can have training camps together, so they can be practicing together regularly. Like in an ideal world, you have them all living in, say, Alberta, um, in Calgary. But um, if that can't happen, because a lot of these players, of course, have established families and all that, I think there needs to be more funding allocated to those teams so that they can travel and be together. And that means that those athletes need to be full-time funded athletes. They shouldn't be working at a gym or anywhere on the side. They should be entirely focused on curling. So if Canada's going to focus on winning, I think those are the, some of the changes that need to happen. And then on the will that happen front, I mean, <laughs> in talking to the higher ups at Curling Canada, it seems like there is going to be change coming this quadrennial. It's just at the risk of maybe changing what the national championships look like, right? With every province represented. So it's such a tough question, Warren. I don't think I adequately answered it, but I tried. Yeah, it is a difficult one. It requires a lot of discussion. Of course, we bring another factor into all this as well, and that's the provincial territorial associations. When it comes down to an AGM, they hold all the votes, one for each territory province. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not sure with this area where this responsibility stops and where it ends with regard to Curling Canada versus the provinces. As we move forward here, I think something has to change without question. On the other side of the equation is the aspect of participation levels in Canada. I don't think it's any secret that numbers have been dropping uh, in a lot of curling clubs, facilities, Canada-wide for some time. Many have closed. If I observe the thing myself, I do not see enough young millennials and Gen Zers coming into the sport to maintain the numbers we need going forward for participants. Looking at curling versus other sports, do you see other sports facing the same time of issues that uh, the Gen Zs, young millennials, aren't appealing to the the old way of doing things and there's need to change things? How do you see all that shaking down for curling? Yeah, I do see other sports facing similar challenges. I think we've seen dropped participation rates in a lot of sports among kids. And I don't know what the cause of that is. Like certainly COVID didn't help. And the fact that there's just so much that's vying for kids' attention these days and technology has changed. But I, I don't know, Curling Canada is investing resources in getting kids into the game. I think certainly that needs to be maybe more of a priority for the organization going forward. But I think that's honestly a battle that so many um, sporting organizations are facing across all sports is how do we keep people involved? I think one of the beauties of curling is if you compare it to something like hockey, um, it's just 
or golf. It's not expensive, right, to get into, at least as far as I know. Um, So I think the fact that it's a more accessible sport, that should sort of be hammered home too to families that you can get into these programs without sort of breaking the bank the way you might spend several thousand dollars on, say, a hockey season. So yeah, maybe that needs to be promoted a little bit more. And uh, just the getting programs in schools, I think, is a really big thing to just get the sport introduced to kids so that they know that it exists. Uh, I think all of those things could help. Well, yeah, there's no question about uh, trying to grow the sport um, from the youth. I know uh, most of the city uh, schools in Edmonton do have, no, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of schools do use the local club. And I think that kind of, you know, we go back to using uh, curling facilities versus private clubs. We really need to have schools and people that are kind of on the fringe thinking, should we go curling or not? Oh, gee, it's a private club. I'm not even going to phone there. Whereas if we just start to consider curling all these clubs as facilities where everybody is completely welcome and everybody, meaning absolutely everybody, from your point of view, uh, what do you see in that regard? I, I certainly see it being that way. I completely agree with you. I mean, when you're exposed to something at a young age, it makes such a difference, right? Like, I look at some of the Olympic sports like bobsleigh and and diving, and you see athletes from Calgary and Montreal thriving in those sports because they have the facilities, right? And now Vancouver, having hosted the Olympic Games. But I think it's because those kids are aware of those sports from a young age, and they can focus in on them from a young age, fall in love with them at a young age. And I think it's it's the same for curling. And to your point, yeah, you should be able, Kevin, to walk into a club and join a learn-to-play program or whatever it is that's on offer there and just be able to get into that environment that all of the high performance curlers now talk about that they were in as kids and why they fell in love with the sport. Uh, Christina, this has been great. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of the show today, as we call it the blockbuster show is certainly to look back and evaluate the season, but, but also we love to here at inside curling to celebrate the great sport that curling is from that positive side, Christina, what, what do you see as the, the really good things that have happened over the last 10 years with the sport of curling from where it was 10 years ago to where it is now? Well, I I mean, this might be a little sports net bias, but I think the Grand Slam of curling has been such an incredible um, group of events for everybody. And I know the curlers absolutely love them. Talking to them at the Toronto event this year, a lot of them mentioned this is their favorite. They get lots of fans. Um, they're at home in a sense in Canada, obviously. Um, but there are so many positives. And and to be honest, I, I cover a great range of sports. I write features and mm-hmm. curling's my favorite because the athletes, they're funny, they're nice, they're obviously incredibly gifted. But they also, talking to them feels like I'm leaning over the fence talking to a neighbor. You know, there's just, it's, they're very accessible. And I think that's a great thing for fans too. Like you really feel like you can get to know um, Brad Gushu or you can get to know Carrie Einerson. Um, And they're such incredible role models and incredible athletes and great people. Um, I think that's such a positive in curling. It's it's surrounded with really great athletes and great people. Great great way to uh, great way to end it and sign off on this. Uh, okay, you're off golfing, uh, as we said. Yeah, what what's your handicap? 
10 million. <laughs> 10 million, okay. Yep, give or take. So here's the advice for you today, okay? Now listen to me. I, I know these things. If you don't cheat, Christina, you're only cheating yourself. Okay, so you get out there. Okay, <laughs> get that foot wedge going. Kick things around. Thanks a lot, Christina, for all you do for the sport of curling. We really appreciate. It. We look forward to reading more and more of your stuff down the road. Take it easy, Christina. Thank you, guys, and thanks so much for including me in the blockbuster. A real honor. <laughs> thanks, Christina. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I think I got all this right. Our next guest, Ted Wyman uh, from Winnipeg, is the head sports writer for, I want to say sports, uh, for Post Media. Uh, you're with the uh, Winnipeg Sun, and you've been covering curling since, uh, you know, I don't know, the Great Depression, okay, that you've been stuck around. Uh, thanks a lot, Ted, for joining us. And uh, we've had uh, Christine on and you, and we're going to get a couple more people weighing in today on, on what has happened over the last year in the curling world. So we'll, we'll open with that with you about uh, your rap on the, on the year that was. What, what sticks out? That's an open question because it was one heck of a year in terms of, I don't know if I can remember a year that was quite so full of news, right from having Olympic trials in November, having the Botcher team break up right after that, then getting into some provincials, some canceled events, uh, you know, uh, then Olympics. An amazing Briar and Scotty's, uh, you know, I just can't think of a year where there were more things to write about on a daily basis in curling. Maybe it happens every four years and I'm just not remembering well, but this one really stands out for me as being a newsy year. Uh, Kevin? First of all, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. I would like to dive a little deeper because you covered the game all the way back to, to kind of where I started playing the game, actually, in the early 90s. And I guess, have you seen anything like this with uh, Canada's ranking in, in the world of curling? Like, uh, not so much individual efforts, but just sort of an overall view of, I guess, where Canada sits in men's curling, women's curling, and mixed doubles, and even Ted Jr.'s. You know, there is that concern that Canada is just not quite there at the top. And it's interesting because... You can look at it that way, of course, and you can say it needs to be better. Canada needs to figure out a way to be better. But then you also look and you see it's Nicholas Adine that's winning everything. It's Bruce Mowat that's finishing second in everything. There's two sides to that story, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like the trend in recent years has not been particularly good for Canada. And I didn't like the feeling of it at the Olympics, to be honest, where it just, you know, I was, I happened to be lucky enough to cover the Olympics for post media. I was at the curling every day and the feel of it that Canada just wasn't that good for them. They just didn't perform well in that important situation. Jennifer Jones's team didn't perform all that well. John Morris and Rachel Holman just were a step behind. And even little things like the last stone draw where Canada got, you know, beaten so badly, those things were concerning to me. And, and you know, it didn't get that much better at the Worlds because things, you know, the medals, uh, the, the gold medals didn't come there either. If you think back, Ted, to um, hockey in Canada, this is quite a few years ago. And I remember all the big discussions because we were, we were actually you know, struggling a little bit at the, on the international stage in hockey. And they talked about, and you remember this, talking about, well, the kids have to be brought up, you know, 
when they're doing their skating drills to have the puck on their stick, have their puck on the stick all the time, like in Sweden or Finland or Czech Republic. And over time, actually, the training systems, and the only reason I, I kind of have an idea about this is Karik was quite involved in hockey at that time. And, uh, and the training, how kids in Canada in hockey trained kind of changed a little bit with with uh, the puck handling ability and, and speed. I believe it worked. Like Canada's come back and have really been quite dominant in, in hockey internationally. I see that as being somewhat similar in this curling situation where, you know, we've been doing the same thing for forever, which which worked great forever up until about the last 10 years. But I don't see a lot of changing as far as our training methods, training camps, Canada-wide, really anything, uh, Ted. I had a really interesting conversation with Mark Kennedy about that very thing. And he said that, you know, when they formed this new team, uh, the Botcher team with Brett Gallant and Ben Hebert, their thinking was, let's centralize this team. Let's be a team that can be together a lot. We can do all this working out. We can take steps back from work so that we can concentrate even more on being as good as possible. And the idea there was to be world champions. It was to be competitive with Nicholas Adin. And I thought that was a really interesting take from him because it sounded to me like the curlers are thinking, well, we're going to have to take this into our own hands. I think it would be good if Canada put more resources into making sure that there were centralized locations for teams and that we were having teams that play together and practice together as much as these European teams do. But if that's not going to happen, if, if Curling Canada is not going to make that happen, then it's nice to see that some of these teams are. And I think they clearly recognize that that is what has to happen for them to be successful if they get out of Canada. Uh, Kevin, I'm guessing this is not the show where Warren is Run out of opinions or questions. <laughs> I think you're safe to say that, Jim. <laughs> you're, you're on, Warren. <laughs> I think the first thing, they have to start talking about it, and I'm not sure, maybe they are talking internally, but we're not hearing enough, a lot publicly where they're seeking other people's uh, thoughts uh, on the whole process. And I know Curling Canada with Inside, they've, they've got their own struggles because Curling Canada gets the, the brunt of the blame and everything, but they're dealing with 14 provincial territorial associations as well who have a lot of impact and input into what goes on there and how everything is structured, particularly when it comes to the Briar and Scotties. And although within Curling Canada, they may want to change that structure, they're pretty hamstrung on being able to do anything. So I think they have to start talking. I think something new has to happen in Canada going forward at the high performance end for Canada to remain dominant uh, going forward. But I've suggested uh, in something I wrote here for a few weeks ago about maybe they need three training centers in Canada, central, east, west, uh, to, to tackle some of the things that you were suggesting. Do you think that might be part of the solution? Oh, I think that's a fantastic idea. I mean, I realize the amount of money that would be going into doing something like that. And because I think many, many people look to the Scotland or Great Britain model in terms of uh, how they do centralize their athletes at a training center. It's in Sterling. And they, you know, the, the, you know Bruce Mowat and his teammates are there. The mixed doubles players are there. The top women's team, Eve Muirhead is the gold medal winner from, uh, from the Olympics this year. Um, they're there. There are other teams that are identified that are coming up behind them and, uh, and challenging them. They're part of it. They're working out all the time. They have constant access to practice. We can see the results because those teams are very successful. Bruce Mowat 
though he has just as much trouble with Nicholas Adin as everyone else does, his team has been the second most dominant team on the planet for the last two or three years, at least. You can see that that's a result of how they do things there. But when you put an idea like that with three regional training centers, um, that might be something that could work. And I do think it's something that should be looked at because it's obvious that that model works. Let's shift gears and go back, uh, look at, at last year again. And uh, from the world level, let's talk about who do you think was the number one men's team, the number one men's curler, and the same thing with the women. Well, I don't think it's going to be very hard to pick the number one men's team. <laughs> Pretty obvious it was Nicholas Adin. It was amazing watching them play at the Olympics. You know, Brad Goosh, who tried what I thought was a, a circus shot in, in the last end of their semifinal because he, he just didn't think there was any other way to beat that team, especially with extra ends coming up. That's just how good Nicholas Adin is. You almost have to take a, a wild shot to try to make it happen. I, I think Oscar Erickson is probably right there as well. He's the guy that has uh, mentioned so many times for his incredible consistency at the third position for Team Sweden. And, um, you know, the women's side is a little different. You did have Eve Muirhead win the gold medal, and they only got in because of the last stone draw, and then they managed to win the gold medal, whereas Canada didn't even get to play for a medal. So that was really, uh, you know, kind of an amazing little mini run that they got on at the end to win it. You know, this team is now broken up, the uh, Silvana Tiranzoni team, but I think that team is truly the, the best uh, on the planet in recent years, and they've proved it over and over again. And I'll take Alina Petz as the, the best women's curler right now. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, so I agree with you, Ted. I think Alina Petz is probably maybe the best female curler in the world. And I noticed in your discussion here, you never mentioned Bruce Mowat. Where do you think he fits into all this? Well, I think Bruce Mowat is, you know, the second best skip in the world right now. I, I, I think it's pretty fair to put Brad Gushu right there with him. I, I wouldn't want to uh, disrespect Brad because obviously he's been incredible as well. But Bruce Mowat's been the one that's been making the finals. He's the one that's been, you know, right there, has, has be beaten Nadine a few times. I really think that his team is, is very, very strong, and I think he's a very good curler on his own. If you were asking me for a top five, you know, he'd be right there. Obviously, I mentioned Oscar Erickson and Nicholas Adin, and I think Brad Gushu would be right up there as well. I, I wouldn't want to just stick entirely with skips because I think a curler that I thought had an incredible year was Brett Gallant. I mean, that guy was uh, absolutely outstanding in all the different events that he played in. Um, I joked with him, actually, when he went to the World Mixed Doubles that he had won with uh, four-player curling, he'd won with three-player curling, and he'd won with, and now he was going after <laughs> two-player curling. And was there a singles event that he could enter? <laughs> yeah, good point. Let's talk about Mixed Doubles. Uh, who do you think is kind of dominant in that right now, or, or is there someone who is? I don't know. I don't know if anyone is. I mean, uh, not a single person I talked to had... Amos Mosner and Stefania Constantini of Italy winning the gold medal at the Olympics and certainly not going undefeated to do it. You know, I don't think, I think you could take any of those 10 teams that went into the Olympic field and say, this team has a chance to win because it just seems like you can get on a roll and, and you can do it. That team was obviously outstanding. I, I don't think that that team was particularly, uh, you know, well-trained. I, I don't mean that they weren't well-trained, but they weren't like a team that had centralized and concentrated only on mixed doubles. That was not the case. Amos Mosner was also playing with Joel Retorna as his team. 
at the Olympics. So it's interesting because we keep discussing more and more what needs to be done for mixed doubles, especially in Canada. And, and the idea is that we need more teams that are concentrating on it. We need more teams training it all the time and playing it all the time and therefore getting better. I'm not sure that that actually played out at the Olympics this year because of Italy winning. But I do think that that's going to be a big focus of the next uh, quadrennial in terms of uh, getting teams better trained to play in events like that. So I can't give you a great answer about who the most dominant team is. I just think that uh, like in Canada, it seems like we can pick a lot of different people and put them there and they can be really good. I thought Glant and Peterman played well, but again, it doesn't necessarily translate uh, into what Canada hopes for. Do you think there needs to be specialist teams and do you think that will become a trend? Well, we have seen it already, right? I mean, Kirk Myers and Laura Walker, obviously John Morris is not planning to play four-player curling anymore, although he told me that before the last quadrennial, so I'm not sure I... Um, I'm going to buy that all day, but we'll see. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think just like Kirk and Laura right off the bat that come to mind for me, they're a pretty highly ranked team in mixed doubles. They were one of the top teams in Canada. I think they might have been second on the list. I, I think they're a team that could do just as well as anyone there. And I think it's really good to see them say they're going to give it a go to focus on that. It's easy enough to say in the first year of the quadrennial, I, I, you never know if that's going to continue or if they're going to get you know, invited to play with four-player teams or decide to skip again on their own and, and, and see how that goes. Interesting to see what that experiment does. Well, yeah, you know what, I'd like to get into that a little bit more because it seems like the podium, I do understand what you're saying, Ted, that teams maybe specialize in mixed doubles, but I don't see the podium telling us that. You know, the world's obviously Bobby Lammy and, uh, and Bobby, we had him on the show and it's not all about mixed doubles for him or Eve, for that matter. It's more four-person, but I think it was Eve, Warren, that said, oh, well, we gave it a goal, I think, or something like that, and then took the gold medal. And then you've got uh, Oscar Erickson, to your point, Ted always wins, tends to always do something good, and you know, picks up a bronze medal uh, in mixed doubles. And obviously, four-person curling is more up his alley for most of the time. So I just don't know if, if specialized is going to matter or not, because you've only got a certain amount of Gretzky's, and those are the ones you want on the ice, be it a Bobby Lammy or Bruce Mowat or Oscar Erickson or Mark Kennedy or whoever you, whoever that person may be. Eve Muirhead certainly has to be looked at in that way. You did bring up Eve and coming out of the blue, and, and uh, I think the difference for her, Ted, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, was having Vicky throw third. I, I don't remember in all the years of watching Eve, uh, I've always been a big Eve Muirhead fan, as you can tell the way I'm talking, but having Vicky throw third, I actually gave Vicky right at the end of the Olympics the MVP of the Olympics, um, and I don't think Eve ever had that kind of support. Yeah, I thought that she was excellent, obviously, but again, I mean, I didn't honestly think that that team was really a contender for the gold even a couple of days before they won the gold. You know, they, they, they were in a position on the last day of the round robin where Canada ended up losing because they needed uh, both Korea, I think it was, and it was Great Britain to win as well as them. And then they'd all be in a three-way tie that Canada would advance on. But instead, they ended up having everything else go wrong on the ice for them and Canada was out. It just was, uh, it was a bizarre one. But I, I was really happy for Eve Muirhead because I saw her in absolute tears in 2018. The whole great British team was uh, devastated in 2018 because 
she ended up losing in the bronze medal game. And it was just, you know, I mean, they everybody puts so much blood, sweat, and tears into four years of trying to get to those Olympics and preparing for it and doing everything you can. And if it doesn't work in the biggest moment, it can be pretty devastating. So it's pretty nice to see someone that's been through that so many times uh, finally be the one that emerges and wins the gold medal. Ted, thanks a million, man, for coming on. Uh, Kevin has done a series of interviews that are going to drop over the next several weeks in our quote-unquote off-season. I've listened to those, and one of the questions he's posed to a lot of those curlers are the the bond spiel formats or the tournament formats, playoff formats. You know, there's there's wild cards, there's pools, there's round robins, you know, draw to the button. There's all sorts of different uh, ways that they're trying to determine who gets to the final. Uh, What's your opinion, Ted, on, on how that should play out? Is there one format that you think should last and do you get a sense from the players what they feel about it yeah i'm not sure exactly which events you're talking about i mean because there are different formats obviously for the briar scotties world championship etc i mean i don't think i don't think any canadians love the way that things are done on the world level where the uh, draw to the button is so important as a media guy i was sitting there from the very beginning of the olympics checking it very closely to see how Canada was doing. And I was watching as they kept dropping further and further down in the standings. And it was bizarre. You know, the the Jones team, uh, Elaine Dag Jackson said they spent weeks practicing draw to the button just so that they could be one of the best teams at the Olympics. And I think they were 10th out of 10. Uh, it just was not working for them. And it's amazing how much that ended up having to do with both the Morris and Homan team and the Jennifer Jones team uh, missing out on the playoffs. That's something that I don't know how if you can fix that, but I do know Canadians do not like that format, and I don't really like it either. I, I understand why they do it, but I don't think I, I don't think I like it. It just doesn't make sense to me. I think if you can have a tiebreaker game and 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 win your way in, that makes a lot more sense. Right. Canada's still doing that at least uh, using tiebreakers, but I did not like the format of the Scotties and Briar. The way that the teams qualified for the playoffs through their pools, I I didn't think that was a very good system, and I haven't heard too many curlers that like that. You know, you 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 played a final and then you had to go into a page after it again. That's what kind of what it seemed like to me. A lot of that was because Curling Canada wanted more TV games, so I get it again. But I hope they come up with a better format than that. Uh, Ted, thanks a million. Uh, you're important to the sport of curling and your coverage of it. We really appreciate it. It's 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 thought provoking. Uh, you get a gold star today, Ted, for the interview. Uh, you've done very well. Wow, thank you. <laughs> That's the Jim Jerome gold star. Very exciting. <laughs> you haven't given us a solution to how to beat Bruce Mowat. I'm thinking Kev Warren, Ted, we got to spike his haggis. That's what you have to do. <laughs> Give him a rotten Swedish meatball to a dean. Uh, Ted, thanks very much for coming on, and uh, and thank you for all you do for the sport of curling, and we look forward to reading more and more of your stuff down the road. Cheers, Ted. Always a pleasure, guys. Have a great day. Hey, thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Okay, as we blast along here uh, with our wrap-up show, Warren called it Blockbuster Kevin. Blockbuster Kev would be you coming back to curl. Come on. you got to try it. Uh Mixed doubles. (laughs) Wouldn't that be something? Maybe you can invent the new one, Kevin. Stick mixed doubles. Really easy on you. A uh, bunch of people cover curling, of course, and uh, one of them who does is uh, Greg Strong. Greg has been writing for the Canadian Press, covering the great sport of curling. Uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. We appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Great to be on with you. Uh, thank you. I guess, Greg, if you had to write, uh, if you had to pull away from this interview before we do it, um, and you had to write a wrap-up piece today on the year that was in in the sport of curling and, and what happened in Canada in the sport of curling or around the world, what would you write about? Well, I think you'd have to start with Team Gushu's remarkable season. Uh, certainly one of the I mean, top performances at the Briar and it reached the podium at the Beijing Olympics and won the trials. And, you know, I think in general terms, though, I mean, it was such a strange season. It was it was very weird in that, you know, kind of slow start as far as what events were going to actually take place. And then, you know, you had events that were kind of at half throttle and then some were at full throttle. And I think at the end of the day, there were... Uh, mixed results, and that's certainly been a talking point uh, for a little while now. Uh, but I think I think Gushu's performance would probably be the lead there. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Greg. Really appreciate it. Um, I'd really, you know, looking back at at what happened in the last year and the last quad, I think is great. But I, I'd love to look forward into the next four years and just get your thoughts on where things are going because it's been a wild ride the last couple of years with Italy coming on so strong, a gold medal at the Olympics, a bronze at the at the Worlds and the men's. Uh, you've got India actually getting on a podium in Kazakhstan, uh, Turkey coming on strong in women's and mixed doubles. Japan really coming on strong in, in pretty much all, all uh, disciplines. Um, the world of curling is, is changing. I'd like to see from your crystal ball, what, what do you see happening in the next four years uh, in our wonderful sport? I think uh, there's a great foundation in place, but I think there's a real opportunity when we look at the international scene. I'd love to see the Grand Slams go international, whether that be the United States, but it would be great to see them get into the Asian market. And I know there's, uh, you know, that that's been something that was on the radar a few years ago when Scott Moore was running the show at Sportsnet. They wanted to try and and get into that market. And I, I can tell you, Kevin, from walking around the mix zones at the Olympic Games and seeing the rock stars, you know, from Japan and South Korea with the, the size of the scrums for these athletes. Like, you know, some athletes just really have that buzz and, and the nation's media gravitates to them. Well, at the curling in particular, I think Team Japan was probably number one on that front. I think that's a really untapped market when we look at the, the game right now and, and what could be. How you get into it? I don't know. I think it all comes down to television. Sportsnet, of course, has done a, a, a great job at the Grand Slams and, and the coverage there. Uh, but I'd like to see televised coverage of other events as well. And uh, I know, obviously, these things cost money, and obviously, uh, we need all the stakeholders to be on board. But I, I really think there's an opportunity there for international curling to really grow and, and thrive. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's, okay, so the the grand, so what we have right now is we have a world championship that involves X amount of countries, maybe too many right now, but X amount of countries, and maybe at those events, forty to fifty percent of the teams have a legitimate shot of winning. And then you've got other international events like the Slams, where it's only the best of the best. So you may have out of a sixteen-team field, half the field be from Canada, and then maybe three or four other countries involved. How about a, a different stride? Are you maybe, between, I'm kind of trying to read between the lines of what you're not saying, and that's sort of maybe a, a World Cup type thing where it's a World Curling Federation sanctioned event, but not like a world championship where you've got weak teams in it, but possibly more a maximum of X, 
two or three Canadians, two or three South Korea, two or three Japan, uh, so on, so on. Is that more what you're thinking to guarantee? Because you're the one who mentioned the rock stars of Japan and South Korea, but we can't guarantee in a Grand Slam situation that they'll be there. But in a World Cup where that's the best countries, you would. I think if we're going to really look at this as we look ahead to the next few quads, curling, just in general terms, if you're a, if you're a casual curling fan, say you watched a game at the Olympics and you were into it, where would you go from there as far as getting knowledge about the teams and the players? I really think there's a void right now in curling with just general information. And yes, there are some independent websites and such, but I, I, I looked at the World Curling Tours website today and it, it had a few items on it from 2020 and 2021. The rankings were outdated. I would love to see something like you see, say, on the professional golf scene, and obviously, it's tough to compare golf and curling. They're, they're two wildly different sports. But at the same time, you can go onto one website and look at 200, 300 different players and a full calendar and have all of that information at your fingertips. Information on sportsnet.ca, you can pull up whatever team and kind of get their bio. But there isn't one umbrella taking care of the sport as far as the casual fan they want to learn what's on TV. They want to follow their favorite favorite team. It can be more challenging. You have to navigate team websites. You have to navigate independent websites like Curling Zone or whatever it might be. I think it would be a great start to have something where there's just one umbrella and you can get all the information and then take things from there. Small steps. I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is something that's been on top of my mind for some time now is there's just not enough information out there about everything that's taking place with the sport. And as you suggest, it's not centralized. While we're on the topic of coverage, let's talk about media. This is a little exchange you and I had, and I think it was a good one. Uh, I can remember the day, it's a while ago, but maybe not that long ago, late 80s, early 90s, the media bench at the Briar had seats for 120 plus people. And well, in fact, you can't say maybe they were all legitimate media, but there would be 80 or 90 legitimate media there. The media bench today has probably got about four people on it by, by my memory. And, of course, the matter of how the sport or any sport is covered is changed. It's now gone big on social media, uh, big on television. But how do you see this as far as curling is concerned, and how does it compare to other sports with regard to how they're covered and how should they maybe be covered? You know, it's it's tough, certainly in an Olympic year, to look at the different events, domestic events, international events, because a lot of outlets, you know, heavily invest in, the, in their Olympic coverage. And sometimes that means other events don't get staffed the way they normally would. You know, I was doing a feature story recently on Marcel Rock when he was heckled at the Briar. I think it was 2004 or three, something like that. And I looked at the YouTube video and the media bench, like the riser had five rows and it was packed. Nowadays, you certainly don't get those giant risers. It's five to 10, maybe 15 traveling reporters. Uh, other events, there's, I mean, I was down in Las Vegas at the World Championship, and some days I was the only reporter there. You know, it's, it's a tough one. There's certainly, you know, podcasts now that uh, have done a great job covering the sport. It's, it's different. You know, the media world is changing. You know, curling is just such a great event to cover. The access is unbelievable. The curlers are are fantastic interview subjects. Again, I think there's a lot of potential there. 
and it'll be interesting to see where things go now that we get back into a regular season as we look ahead to 22-23 and a fresh quad plenty of great storylines I think uh, when it comes to media coverage, there's there's a lot of potential there. When it comes to the coverage aspect, uh, how does curling comparing to other sports that you're covering today as far as how are they being covered? Similar or different? How they're being covered? Well, let's see. It's like I'm often down at the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, and well, first of all, they're media trained. They speak in, they often speak in 15, 20 <laughs> second cliches. Yeah. And you often don't get much to work with. It can be very challenging to get a quote or two that uh, you would want to put into a story. Curling is the complete opposite of that. That's what makes it such a joy for, uh, for sports writers is that curlers are just, you know, great interview subjects. They give you great quotes. They give you all kinds of time, all kinds of access. Uh, they, I think they really enjoy the interaction a lot more than, you know, some of the professional athletes from the big four sports, let's say. And so I think that's reflected in the quality of the stories, the content, and it's just, I think, more interesting for readers in general to read curling stories than to perhaps read a, a baseball or a basketball game over. You know, it's night and day. And we've got Ben Hebert and Johnny Mull, <laughs> our sport. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, go go down the list. Greg, a little bit of fun here. Who is your favorite person to interview on the curling side who will lay their cards out on the table? Oh, where to begin? I mean, Ben Hebert, Brad Gushu, John Morris, um, Chelsea Carey's great interview. Darren Molding, uh, fantastic. I'd say that was probably the story of the of the season, was that uh, split story with uh, Team Botcher. I mean, you cannot beat a curling split story, by the way. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Our biggest show, Warren and Kevin and uh, Greg, was... Uh, that exactly. We we interviewed Botcher and then we interviewed Molding. I forget in which order, and uh, our our ratings, so to speak, went went through the roof. So you're right. A good a good breakup makes for good good listenership, big viewership. Greg, what do you see today overall with the sport of curling? Is uh, as far as you're concerned, Canada world or the sport overall is working, and what isn't working, and where should there be some possible changes? What's working? Um... Let's start with what's not working. I think in Canada, uh, the results haven't been there. Um, certainly at the top international events, the Olympics, the the World Championships. Um, you know, there's lots there's lots of reasons for that, as you know, you guys have documented over the last few seasons on your pod, for sure. There's obviously not an easy fix, and I mean, you can look at centralization going forward. You can look at a variety of things. I think I think the idea of having the four players on your team in the same area to be able to practice full time would certainly help. However, some teams don't do that and have had great results. So it's a, it's a tough one with what's not working. I, I do think curling would be well served to uh, have all of the stakeholders be on the same page and just deliver content access, make it easier for the curling fan to get into the sport. I think that would be good. I know a hot topic is certainly over the last few seasons has been whether we want to change the structure of the national championships, which have been tinkered with a bit. And I, I've, I've wanted to chime in on this because I've heard it uh, come up on your pod from time to time. I, I love it. I love the fact that we have a traditional Canadian sporting event that's steeped in Canadiana and history, having covered a variety of different sporting events over my career. So few events have that ability to bring in sports fans from across the country and just feel that spirit, that energy. The Briar and the Scotties have it. Um, but I, I do think that that event's nucleus, its core, 
is strong and solid and so few events like it. I'd love to see it continue like that. Greg Strong from Canadian Press, man. Thank you. Terrific wrap up you gave us. And uh, we've been, we've been, you know, talking to a couple other members of the press, uh, Ted Wyman and uh, Christina Rutherford and yourself. Thank you again for all you're doing for curling and covering it. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, as they say, and really appreciate you coming on. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thanks, Greg. Hey, thanks, Greg. Okay, hope you had your listening caps on, as they used to uh, tell me in elementary school. Times a day, Warren. Jim, get your listening cap on. <laughs> Not a strong listener, Kev. There's a term for that, Jim. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was so bad, I said, can't I just stand in the corner with gum on my nose? Can't we just do that for a while? <laughs> uh, Kev, that was great stuff. Uh, boy, I, I, we should do this two or three times during the year. Uh, fantastic wrap-up. From Ted Wyman, we thank him, Christina Rutherford and Greg Strong, all guys who uh, cover curling, and uh, and they do a fantastic job. What did you think about all of it this morning, Kev? Well, you know, there's well, there's obviously lots of different messages, but one of the messages was that it was interesting is one of the most amazing curling years ever. That, that is an interesting way to look at it because of all the team changes, all the excitement. Of course, uh, mentioning the, the botcher molding blow up mid season. Of course it took over the curling world. Um, that Briar game where, where, uh, molding played against his old skipper and botcher and, uh, and, uh, it was quite the tense game to say the least. So yeah, you know, that, that is all kind of very interesting stuff. I just think that it was quite the season. Uh, and I think that, uh, all three put that across fairly well. Um, all agree that uh, our sport is in good, strong standing, but could use some organization. That's what I took out of it. Warren, you, uh, you single-handedly grew this sport to a huge, huge event, uh, in the Briars and the Scotties back in the day. I remember when I got involved, I think it was the late nineties, the Briar patch, you had to expand it to sort of three, four, 5,000 people. You brought in that Purple Heart Lounge because there were so many people coming out to divide it up. Uh, three draws a day, 14, 15,000 people in the arenas. It was huge, Warren. And then, is it fair to say, Warren, it was a rapid decline now where these national events are held in much smaller areas with much smaller venues? And why? I think it's a complicated answer, Jim. And I, I guess I can look at my own observations of what we knew we had back in the 80s and start to work on that. And it was a different time, a different era. And there was two things didn't exist then. One was the Olympics and the other was the Grand Slam. Right. Which changed things quite a bit with regard to how curling teams became structured and how the top players started to look at the game overall. And if we look back at the Briar during those uh, heydays of it, uh, the field was was more balanced. You had a situation with most of those Briars in those days, there were 12 teams. Mm-hmm. Certainly out of the 12 teams, probably eight or nine had a chance. You just didn't know for sure who might come out at the end of the day. And as a result, there was a huge, I think, fan base from within the provincial area that started to follow the event. And uh, it wasn't unusual to have... I can remember doing the Briars in Edmonton. We would have 3,000 people from Saskatchewan travel to Edmonton for those Briars. Mm-hmm. And and that all 
came to a head probably in 2005, and I, and I started to notice that things was cha- were changing from that point. Couldn't quite put my finger on it. And it was kind of interesting. We had the, the recession in 2008 that impacted a lot of things. And uh, we went into the Briar in Calgary in 2009, and it did pretty well. It hit 245,000, which was up in the category where we had, had been before. But the other thing that happened there, we had put a real focus on probably getting younger people. And it was a pretty young crowd at that briar. But we went into the Olympics in 2010, and maybe to some degree the the strength of what took place between 1997 and 2010 was... uh, the last five years, maybe six to ten, was a bit of a hangover from the uh, from the 2010 Olympics. But after the 2010 Olympics is when I noticed there was something that wasn't the same. And uh, by the time we hit Edmonton with the Briar in 2013, right after Saskatoon in 2012, 2013 told me, ah, uh, this whole thing has changed considerably. Mm-hmm. And it's going to continue to decline if we don't start to change some things. I mean, one of the real things that uh, was evident was the Edmonton Briar that normally brought 3,000 people from Saskatchewan had 1,000. And the attendance from 2005 of 280,000 was now down to, I think, about 170. And uh, the last major briar I worked at, you were there too, was 2015 in Calgary. And we worked our butts off uh, in so many ways with that briar to to get people there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ended up with 150,000. And uh, I can remember sending the CEO a note after that briar was saying, you know, I think this whole thing, as I've suggested before, has got to go in a different direction. It's not where it once was. And there's many reasons for that. But my advice would be don't go back to another large building. Right. Uh, with the current way we're doing things because it isn't going to work. And uh, I think I've been right in that regard and the fact that that slide has continued. And I think discussions have to take place as to what has to happen with the Briar and Scotty's in particular to change it to to bring it back somewhat to what it was because it's just going to continue to slide with the current format, in my opinion. It's interesting, Warren, when we look back, there was parity, right? I, I remember seeing... I think Macaulay won in uh, in BC, and of course, you know Kevin and Furby in Alberta. Uh, there was a big burly guy, big tall burly guy who won in Saskatchewan, uh, and then Manitoba, of course, and Northern Ontario, Ontario. Menard with Quebec, Daisy won back in those days, and and of course Gushu. So not so much anymore. No, it's 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 all changed, and uh, unfortunately, there's some very strong-headed people that try and suggest that it should go back the way it was. And you know, if we look through time and history, things can never be the way they were. We have to continue to move forward. And we have to continue to progress, and we have to look at different different approaches, different ways. And I think that's what needs to happen right now, and it needs to come from a from a huge discussion. Inside curling at gmail dot com. Drop us a line. Uh, we got lots of time uh, to look at these emails. Well, that's not right, Kevin. Warren does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kevin, you know it never goes well if you and I get the last word. Uh, there's only one guy who gets the last word, and it's it's Warren, okay? Uh, you wanted to talk about what Greg Strong said, Warren? I thought his real interesting comment was the Japanese-Korean rock stars and the number of media that are following those top teams from Korea and Japan is, uh, well, Kevin's been around and he knows what it's like, but it, it, it's quite amazing is the, the prominence that uh, those top curling teams have in those two countries. And it's really interesting. We got an email a couple of days ago from uh, some curlers in Japan and they're asking us questions about what do we think of curling in Japan. So I went back and asked them to send us a resume of what's really happening with curling in Japan as numbers and clubs and so on. I think his is an interesting topic. I think the future for this sport in Asia, from what I know, is uh, going to be pretty huge. What do you think, Kevin? Oh, well, that certainly seems to be the case. You know, it's not 
a really old sport in in Asia. It's fairly new, actually, and and to have teams uh, excel to to the level that they are uh, in a short amount of time is really startling. I, I traveled to Japan three of four years back in early two thousands, late nineties, and. And it was quite in its infancy. We were working with uh, Murazumi, of course, who turned out he's now one of the coaches in in Japan now. But and just getting started, and just to see the growth has been fantastic. I'm really enjoying it. Um, you've got the uh, the big three uh, women's teams from South Korea in uh, Unjun Kim, Minji Kim, and uh, Unji Gim. All three are world class. So the future is huge. I think, Warren, no question. Okay, uh, very good, boys. Uh, story time, this is a good one. Uh, Kevin, you're going to walk us through that. Is, uh, story time is brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Uh, some sad news this week uh, when we heard about Norwegian superstar Thomas Alsrud had passed away from cancer. Thomas was... Uh, only 50 years old and a very popular and successful player. I remember Kevin when he walked out with the pants. That's what everyone will remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, between 1998 and 2016, he played in 12 world championships, 17 European championships, and three Olympics. He won two uh, uh, European championships, a world champ, and Olympic silver medalist when he played against you, Kevin, in the gold medal final in the 2010 Olympics. Kev, tell us all about Tomas. Yeah, you know what? It's obviously terrible news, um, young guy, and but you know he fought for the year and a half. You know he, he was you know putting on a good battle. But you know what? I've I've read a lot on on Twitter and on on all the different social media platforms about about Thomas and and being a great guy, which is true. Always ready to have a cocktail and have fun and 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 all of that, and obviously a brilliant curler. Mm-hmm. But the story I've got is actually just a story from the Continental Cup, and I just wanted to kind of give everybody an idea of the showmanship of this guy. Not only a good curler and a good guy, but he, he knew how to take the crowd and really get the crowd behind the sport, behind him. We're playing them in the final of the Continental Cup, and I do not know the year. It was in Alberta. Tomasi has a, a really kind of a, kind of a tough double to win the entire thing. And uh, this is in about the, I'd like to say it was the uh, second last end. And if we could manage to survive that one, it would all go to the last end. But it, uh, that wasn't the point of the story. The story is uh, um, there's a shot to win. This is in Alberta, in Canada. So you would think everybody would be cheering for North America, for the Canadians right. in, in North America. But, of course, it's not the way it worked with Alsrud. Of course, he's always got the crowd on, on his side everywhere in the entire world. So he throws this last rock. He throws this last rock. Just before impact, he yells out, show me the money! <laughs> and the whole place erupts. <laughs> and the rocks go flying all over the place. And 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 I just remember that so clearly that it, the, the game was important. Winning and losing was important. It, it always is to, to top athletes. Mm-hmm. But the show, the show mattered so much. Cool, man. Yeah. I see lots about... The personality, but the, the the gamemanship and the owning of the crowd. He was so good at that. Who, who was Kev? You brought that up in your day, and then I got to ask Warren. Who was the best partier, Kev? It sure wasn't you. You were too serious. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I I, I wouldn't have ranked high on that one. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Um, the plate dance, Pale Lindholm. 
and the plate dance with their team. That was pretty uh, fantastic. That would get uh, huge crowds going. What's all the, the plate point. dance? What, what is that? Oh, I don't know if I can get into it, Jimmy. <laughs> but I guess the, the way to say it, the way to say it is um, yeah. all you're wearing is a plate. And, and, oh, I guess. and the plates okay. go across the team at exactly the right time so that nobody can see anything of what's... Oh, I can see your junk. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying not to say that. I was trying not to say that. Um, <clears throat> but Pale Lindholm, Thomas Allsrud, his team would certainly have been up there. Um, and I wouldn't say it was by partying with, with like alcohol kind of no. stuff. But, but having fun. Like just having fun, uh, no matter what city, right. no matter what we were doing, what event, um, there were teams like that that just had a really good time and, and really nice people throughout the whole team, not just members of the team, but the entire team right. and the entourage. You got to remember, it's not just a team that comes, but there's usually other people and, and really fun as well. How about you, Warren, in your day? Well, Jim... During my time, it was all a big party. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> For a lot of people, but certainly my old skip, Hector Gervais, would have been uh, right up there at the top of the list. Matt Baldwin, as well, was known for a number of antics that uh, he pulled over time uh, at Briars and other, other activities. And I can go on. There was a lot of real characters uh, during my time, and partying was probably a little more prevalent than it is today. <laughs> Probably. Uh, uh, just a little. Okay, Hanson, you're going to be next up for the plate dance. <laughs> uh, what a great show, you guys. Uh, fantastic. And uh, thank you to everyone for being involved. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Warren, thank you for all the work you put into this. And uh, Kevin, same to you. Uh, we couldn't do it without you guys. And uh, we're here to stay. So another great season in the books, boys. And a big thank you to all the gang at Sportsnet who made this thing possible. They do just tremendous work. Uh, and we really appreciate them and all the gang uh, with Sportsnet, starting with Amal Delic. We thank him. Jonathan Brazo uh, is so involved in this in the production side. And our fact checker, he's really good. Mike Rogerson, thank you, Mike, for being a producer. Andrew Holland, Mark LeBlanc, Sam Narswari, uh, Griffin Porter, Rob DiBodesta, of course, Corey Lastman, and Nick Andrade. We really appreciate all the work you guys have done. We've got a number of interviews that have been completed by Kevin back in April, and they're going to be dropping over the next couple months. Uh, in closing, I want to read an email from Janice Ainsworth because it tells you what curling really is all about. Janice says, with the end of the season upon us, as well as the news of losing Thomas Alsrud, a great ambassador of our sport, I reflect on the importance of curling in our lives. It was 2012, and my husband Wayne Harris was a senior provincial qualifier, which was a pretty big deal for the Comox Valley Curling Club. We were all at the club when Wayne got the call, uh, that a team had dropped out of the Victoria Classic, and would the Harris Rink be able to fill in? Wayne and his team jumped at the chance, of course. The field was 16 teams. Kevin Martin was seated number one, and the Harris Rink seated number 16. And the draw was set. Harris versus Martin. The first end, Martin takes one. Second end, Harris takes two. And that was all that we need to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in May 2016, speaking at Wayne's Memorial, I commented that he always said that his claim to fame was that he took a deuce on Kevin Martin. Thanks so much for all you guys do and what, for all you bring to the sport. Thanks a lot, Janice uh, from Vancouver Island. Uh, that's a terrific rap. Great email uh, and very funny. Thank you. Okay, boys, that's it. Enjoy the summer. Uh, listen up, folks, for those interviews that Kevin uh, put together, and we will talk to you 
in a few weeks down the road. See you, Warren. See you, Kevin. Thanks, Jim. (laughs) Thanks, Jimmy. Everybody have a great summer.